Hello, and welcome to Quantum Computing Now, a podcast about quantum computing basics, news, and interviews. I'm your host, Ethan Hansen. Today's episode is going to jump right into the news, covering what's been happening in the world of quantum computing since we last talked about it. It's happening, guys. This is not a drill. Quantum supremacy is here for real. But the world isn't ending? Cryptography hasn't been cracked? Bitcoin is still a thing? What's up with that? And more on Quantum Computing Now. Alright, we got a lot to talk about in this episode, so let's just jump right into it with Google's quantum supremacy. Maybe. Probably. So if you're plugged into quantum computing news at all, you've probably heard of this. It was all over Twitter, all over Reddit, all over anywhere reliable that you're going to get news, you know, like Twitter or Reddit. So because of that, here's the TLDR. You can skip to the timestamp on the screen. Just kidding. This is a podcast. You know, just let hear this. If you haven't, if you don't want to hear all the technical details or you already know a little bit about what's going on, here's my summary. Google has attempted to perform a computation on a quantum computer that would take even the biggest supercomputer over 10,000 years to complete, according to the paper. I say attempted because how are we going to know if they got the right answer? By simulating it on a classical computer? See the problem here? So really we have to wait and see. Um, IBM has a new computer coming out, new quantum computer with 53 qubits, like the computation, the, the processor that Google used to perform the computation. So there's a potential that we could simulate it, um, try it on that as well, and see if we got the same answers. But in general, we have to wait and see. So here's a warning before I really dive into this. There's going to be a bunch of just gross oversimplifications in here. They're interspersed to help people, by which I mean myself, understand what is going on at a basic level. Now, let's get into the nitty-gritty. I read the entire paper, all 12 pages of it, so you don't have to. You're welcome. I know, a whole 12 pages. You don't think it would take you very long, but it's, uh, it's dense. There's a link in the show notes if you want to read it too. Um, I should mention that Google and NASA, this is a joint paper, uh, did not mean to publish it. They published it accidentally, and the internet did what the internet does, which is internet archive. So, you know, it's, it's out there. So what exactly was the computation they performed? The paper itself says, and here's a direct quote, to demonstrate quantum supremacy, we compare our quantum processor against state-of-the-art classical computers in the state of sampling the output of a pseudo-random quantum circuit. So there's some jargon in there. Most of that's pretty self-explanatory, except for pseudo-random quantum circuit. Basically, they used a random generator from a classical machine to generate a quantum circuit. So pseudo-random, meaning it's not pure random. It's based on an algorithm that if you know the seed, it will give you predictable results. Um, But it's, uh, for all intents and purposes, it is a random number generator, but quantum. That's one of those gross oversimplifications I was talking about. Here's what Caltech professor John Preskill, the person who coined the term quantum supremacy, had to say on the problem Google solved in his column for Quantum Magazine. In brief, the quantum computer executed a randomly chosen sequence of instructions. Then all the qubits were measured to produce an output, an output bit string. 
In the rest of the piece, he talks about how it's essentially a useless problem, but interesting nonetheless, and an important milestone in the NISQ, or NISQ, era. NISQ standing for uh, Noisy Intermediate Scale Quantum Machines. Um, and, yeah, I think that's a good summary that you know, it was a random series of executions, and it, it wasn't designed to be super useful. It was designed specifically to show that a quantum processor could do something that a classical processor could not, or at least could not easily. So how do they make sure that the circuit is working correctly, right? They're doing something random. It seems like you should get random results. Here's what the paper says. We verify that the quantum processor is working properly using a method called cross-entropy benchmarking, XEB, which compares how often each bit string is observed experimentally with its corresponding ideal probability computed via simulation on a classical computer. In other words, cross-entropy benchmarking basically benchmarks based on getting the values from the real quantum computing run that were expected from the simulation. Now, you might be going, hold on. I thought that they couldn't simulate this on a classical machine. That's the whole point of all of this. So, yes, exactly. But what they're saying is the small-scale tests should scale up. Um, they used alighted circuits, which were sort of like the circuits cut in half, is a way to think of that. You can simulate each half together and combine them to get what the cross-entropy benchmarking fidelity should actually be. And plotting that cross-entropy benchmarking it follows an expected path. On a log plot, it is linear, which means really it's, a, it's logarithmic, but it's harder to see that the logarithmic plot follows um, for our human brains. So it's a lot nicer to plot it on a log plot and then see that it follows a nice linear path. And then you can look at where it should be next and then see that your quantum machine got the correct answer. That also verifies that because they know that they were getting, they were predicting the small scale tests correctly, it means that if they understand how the circuit's working properly and that the circuit actually is working properly according to their predictions and makes it more likely that they're doing something correct with the large scale confidence. So, or with the large scale tests. So in other words, they don't know for sure that the full tests work properly. That's the nature of the quantum supremacy regime. They can say with a large confidence it did because all of the smaller tests did, but they don't know for sure. We'll talk about how confident they are more later. So I'm going to read a couple quotes from the paper itself that I think have been causing some misunderstandings or issues in a lot of the reporting and we'll break down what those quotes are saying about what they did and some of the ramifications. All right, so here's three sentences in this quote. Stick with me. I'll hit each one individually once I've read the whole thing. But here we go. Our largest random quantum circuits have 53 qubits, 1,113 single qubit gates, 432 qubit gates, and a measurement on each qubit, for which we predict a total fidelity of 0.2%. This fidelity should be resolvable with a few million measurements since the uncertainty on fidelity cross-entropy binary is 1 over the square root of ns, where ns is the number of samples. 
Our model assumes that entangling larger and larger systems does not introduce additional error sources beyond the errors we measure at the single and two qubit level. In this next section, we will see how well this hypothesis holds. All right, that was a lot. Let's break it down. Sentence one, our largest random quantum circuits have 53 qubits, 1,113 single qubit gates, 432 qubit gates, and a measurement on each qubit, for which we predict a total fidelity of 0.2%. A total fidelity of 0.2% means that after running 1,000 shots or runs on a quantum computer of the exact same, of the exact same test, you can expect to get just two of those correct. The fidelity is so low because each time you run a gate or add another qubit, the chance of errors just compounds. It gets bigger and bigger, um, exponentially so. Of course, it's decreasing exponentially, and if you know what that graph looks like, you'll understand what that means. But you, know, if you don't, just realize that every time you add another qubit, every time you add another gate, the fidelity or the chance that you get the correct answer drops each time. Single qubit gates have a much higher fidelity than two qubit gates. It's upwards of 99%, but take that 99% or 0.99 and raise it to the 1113th power and the total fidelity drops drastically. Now combine that with the fact that you've got 53 qubits and 432 qubit gates and you can see why the fidelity or the chance that you get the correct answer is only 0.2%. Okay, moving on to sentence two. This fidelity should be resolvable with a few million measurements, since the uncertainty on f, f uh, fidelity xeb is one over square root of ns, where ns is the number of samples. So rather than think about it with uncertainty of xeb, because xeb has its own whole background paper that they cite, as well as you can find their background information as uh, also got released, um, rather than dive all the way into that, just think of it this way, or try thinking of it this way, maybe this doesn't work for you. Running these circuits and getting the output is like a weighted random. If you had a purely random, you would expect to see, let's say you have a purely random number generator, you would expect to see that it's about level all the way. There are a couple spikes, but it's about level all the way. Now. If you run the circuit 1,000 times, you would get two of those correct. So another way to say that is that um, the, you've got the proportion of correct answers is 0 0.002. The total number of bit strings possible when you have 53 qubits, or 53 bits for that matter, is two to the 53rd. That search space, 2 to the 53rd means that if you were to do it completely randomly, the chance that you get each individual bit string is 1 over 2 to the 53rd. 2 to the 53rd is such a big number, most people can't wrap their heads around that. I certainly can't. Um, if you think about it this way, 2 to the 53rd is 9 times 10 to the 15th. That's 9 followed by 15 zeros you have one over that versus the probability that you get the correct answer is one over 500. So the probability, the one over two to the 53rd, is way smaller than the one over 500. 
So even though the total fidelity is 0.2% uh, or 0 0.002, that's still a much larger percentage chance that you're going to get the correct answer than you would get any other answer. What this means is you're, you're way more likely to get the wanted output than any other single output. Sure, you're going to get the wrong output the majority of times, but you get the right output the plurality of the time. Looking at it graphically, you'll see pretty much flat throughout all of the possible bit strings, and you'll see a spike where the correct output is. So this is what I was talking about with the alighted circuits scaling up um, in sentence 3. Sorry, let's go back to sentence 3. Our model assumes that entangling larger and larger systems does not introduce additional error sources beyond the errors we measure at the single and two qubit level. In the next section, we'll see how well this hypothesis holds. So yeah, alighted circuits scaling up. You've got these smaller scale circuits, and they're assuming that as you entangle more and more, you don't get any other errors, any other sources of errors other than the connectivity of your qubits as well as the qubit gates. Basically, what they're assuming is that there's no, like, no speed of sound barrier, right? Where a long time, you know, planes would fly just fine until they hit the speed of sound, and then they, something different happens at that point, and you get another error, where you have to take that into account with your plane. In this case, what they're saying is that there is basically no qubit error, or no uh, qubit barrier, where up until you get to 53 qubits, everything works out fine. You hit 53 qubits, suddenly everything falls apart, like you would have with a plane breaking the sound barrier back in the olden days. That's their assumption here. And looking at the data, it does seem to work. What they predict and what they actually get makes sense. Um, going back to what I was saying, that log plot scales linearly, that's it, a um, negative correlation, which means the slope is down for the fidelity, but still, it scales linearly, and they aren't they aren't getting something completely off the board. So that's I'm pretty sure a good assumption. All right, here's another quote: For the largest circuit with 53 qubits and 20 cycles, we collected ns equals three times ten to the six samples, or three million samples over 10 circuit in instances, obtaining fidelity XEB equals 2.24 plus or minus 0.21 times 10 to the negative third for the alighted circuits. With 5 sigma confidence, we assert that the average fidelity of running these circuits on the quantum processor is greater than at least 0.1%. That greater than at least 0.1% at the very end is redundant. If I was critiquing this paper, I'd definitely change that. Uh, I'm not saying I'm smarter than actual quantum computing researchers, but I would have caught that. That's sarcasm, by the way. All right, Google, don't hate me. NASA, don't hate me. I love NASA. NASA's great. So, yeah, back on a serious topic. This is saying they're just ridiculously confident that they got the right answer. If you know what... If you know anything about statistics, you'll know that 5 sigma confidence is just insane. Um, 3 sigma, 3 sigma away from your mean, within 3 sigma of your mean, you've got 99.7% of your data. Um, at 5 sigma, it's basically all of your data. Um, and, yeah, 
So going back to the number of samples that they had, 3.0 times 10 to the 6th, if you run a circuit 3 times 10 to the 6th times with a fidelity of 2 times 10 to the negative 3, you can expect to get the correct answer a total of 6,000 times. Compare that to the average number of times you would get any other answer for a 53 qubit um, circuit, it's the average number of times you would expect any other answer is approximately zero. Spreading 3 million, the number of samples, over the search space of 2 to the 53rd power is like spreading an Olympic swimming pool over the whole world. The chance that you find an, a molecule of water from that Olympic swimming pool at any specific point on Earth is essentially zero. And so that's why they can say with such great confidence that they got the correct answer. So here's another quote. For m equals 20, obtaining 1m samples, I'm assuming that's 1 million, um, because one, uh, an m doesn't mean anything else as far as I know. Obtaining 1 million samples on the quantum processor takes 200 seconds, while an equal fidelity classical sampling would take 10,000 years on 1 million cores, and verifying the fidelity would take millions of years. Here's the translation. We aren't doing something that cannot ever be done on a classical computer. We are doing something that we cannot do with our current technology and our current algorithms in a reasonable amount of time. Essentially, they aren't saying, here's an algorithm that we came up with. You can run this on a quantum processor, and you literally cannot physically run it on a classical machine, as far as we know. They're saying, yeah. Okay, you could do this calculation on classical machines, plural, because they're talking about using entire Google data centers for millions of years. But you could do it. It would just take a ridiculous amount of time. We're going to call that close enough to you can't do it on a classical machine. I think that's a fair assumption. We've known about computers for a hundred years at this point. Well, okay, more than a hundred years. But for sake of argument, a hundred years at this point, Having to do something for 10,000 years is a hundred times longer than we've had computers for. It's just, it's a reasonable assumption to say, yeah, it's not, not going to happen. Here's another quote. Up to 43 qubits, we use a Schrodinger algorithm, SA, which simulates the evolution of the full quantum state. The Julek supercomputer, 100k cores, 250 terabytes, runs the largest cases. Above this size, there is not enough RAM to store the quantum state. So what they are saying in this quote is that, yes, with the technology we have, up to 43 qubits, um, uh, not 53, 43, mind you, it is impossible to run this specific program on the ULIC supercomputer because there is physically not enough memory to store the entire quantum state. So this is, this is a slightly bolder claim than, you know, it would take millions of years. This is saying physically it's impossible to do the entire Schrodinger algorithm, full evolution of the quantum state on a physical computer, a physical classical computer. And so, yeah, it's basically quantum supremacy. And this, this last one, this last quote, is less technical 
and more some confusion that's I think should be cleared up and you know cleared up if you read the paper in that there there are some pa some places that are saying oh it only takes 30 seconds for Google to run this this computation that would normally take millions of years on a classical machine and some places are saying it takes you know a little over three minutes and you know the that seems like a contradiction but it's actually a supposed contradiction because it actually takes both 30 seconds and 200 seconds to run this processor. So let me clear that statement up. Here are the scales we're talking about. It takes, a, it takes Google a total of 200 seconds to run the computations. That's the classical processing time for controlling and interpreting the quantum, for controlling the quantum input and interpreting the quantum output, plus the quantum processing time where the quantum processor is actually working. Only takes 30 seconds of specifically quantum processor time. So the quantum processor is only working for 30 seconds, but you still have to control it, get it ready between those times. So I think 200 is a better, um, better measurement to talk about how long it takes to do this, because it's the total time to run this. Um, if you wanted to, you know, go for as small amount of time as possible, it to run just a single shot of the program, which doesn't give you that five sigma confidence we were talking about er earlier, but if you get an answer, you can say it's, it could be this answer. So to run just a single shot takes about 10 microseconds, you know. So really I think 200 seconds is the best way to talk about this, but in just quantum processor time, yeah, 30 seconds. Um, here's, according to Fortune, a source at Google familiar with the situation suggested, however, the NASA accidentally published the paper early before its team's claims could be thoroughly vetted through scientific peer review, a process that could take anywhere from weeks to months. So it's already been weeks. I don't believe it's been months yet. Um, but in other words, take this with a grain of salt. There's a reason you have to internet archive around and can't find Google or NASA making an official statement about all of this yet. That being said, I would classify this as certifiably cool until other information arises. And I think that it's a good, it's a good, uh, cautiously optimistic is a good way to describe my particular thoughts on this issue. Yeah, it's really cool if we have quantum supremacy and we're doing these processes on quantum computers in 200 seconds that would take millennia to run on a classical machine. On the biggest classical machines for that matter. But there's still some, there's possibilities that you could be wrong. And I think that it's very important to take a step back and say, this is really cool, I could be wrong. Now, I'm done waxing philosophical about that, we're going to talk about poor man's qubits, also known as probabilistic bits which I'm going to struggle with saying every single time, so I'm going to shorten that to p-bits. p-bits are essentially like qubits, but p-bits fluctuate over time to give probabilities of 0 or 1, rather than having a set probability. If you go back to my first episode, not the pilot, but the actual first episode, I talk about how qubits are basically, they have probabilities of being in 0 or 1, and you can manipulate those probabilities to do interesting things. The problem is, to get those probabilities, you have to cool them down really, really cold and control them really, really well. P-bits, you don't. P-bits work at room temperature, 
with existing technology modified slightly. That's really cool. The difference there is that there's a subset. You can't do everything that you could do with qubits, with p-bits, but there's an interesting subset where you can take these quantum algorithms, modify them, run them on p-bits, and get, uh, get answers that you would get with quantum bits for much cheaper or at least potentially much cheaper, seeing as you don't have to put it in a dilution refrigerator and be very, very precise with your measurements. Yeah. Um, so the common explanation is that qubits are 0 and 1 at the same time. I sort of talked about this, you know, go back to episode 1, um, but let's just go with that. If qubits are 0 and 1 at the same time, then p-bits are similar, but it, instead of being 0 and 1 at the same time, they rapidly fluctuate between the two values, making them 0 and 1 at different times and different proportions of times. But practically, it, they fluctuate very, very fast, and so they are 0 and 1 at the same time. Confused yet? Nah, don't worry about it. Here's a condensed version of the abstract. Oh, you thought I was going to clear up that confusion? Nope. Basically, p-bits, 0 and 1 at different times, but proportions of those times, so they function sort of like qubits. Here's the condensed version of that abstract. Probabilistic computing is another unconventional computation scheme that shares similar concepts with quantum computing, but is not limited by the above challenges. And then here's my editorializing, decoherence, and need for cryogenic temperatures. The key role is played by a probabilistic bit, a p-bit, a robust classical entity fluctuating in time between 0 and 1 which interacts with other p-bits in the same system using principles inspired by neural networks. Nanoscale magnetic tunnel junctions showing stochastic, stochastic behavior are developed by market, modifying market-ready magnetoresistive random access memory technology and are used to implement three terminal p-bits that operate at room temperature. The p-bits are electron, electrically connected to form a functional asynchronous network to which a modified adiabatic quantum computing algorithm that implements three and four body interactions is applied. Factorization of integers up to 945 is demonstrated with this rudimentary asynchronous probabilistic computer using eight correlated p-bits, and the results show good agreement with theoretical predictions, thus providing a potentially scalable hardware approach to the difficult problems of optimization and sampling. That's pretty good. Factoring 945 uh, having 8 p-bits right out of the gate, pretty dang good, seeing as it took decades to get 8 qubits working together on one chip. That just goes to show that you have, that this is a more robust technology. It's way easier to have classical entities than quantum entities, at least for now. However, this is talking about a modified adiabatic quantum computing algorithm. An adiabatic, adiabatic, adiabatic? Correct me on Twitter, at one Ethan Hansen. Quantum computers are already at the point of thousands of qubits. So it's not going to be producing any calculations that could not be done on an adiabatic quantum computer like you have from D-Wave. That's the type that D-Wave creates. Um, but it could be useful for specialized circuits in the future, seeing as it can run at room temperature, whereas those adiabatic quantum computers still need to have cryogenic temperatures. If it can run at room temperature, it can act like a GPU. And when your computer needs to factor numbers or solve a similar problem, that would be offloaded to the p-bit processor. However, 
like having a quantum computer in your home, having a P-bit-like uh, processing unit is still a long ways off. What's not a long ways off, see that segue there? Nice. IBM's new 53-qubit machine. So IBM's new 53-qubit machine, there's not much technical news to talk about here. It just shows that the field is coming along and new opportunities are being made for companies to leverage and experiment with this technology. It's still the same type that IBM's been perfecting for a while now, a superconducting quantum computer. Um, and along with this single 53-qubit machine, Google will also be making 14 20-qubit machines available to the IBM Q network. 14 whole machines that, for those of you who don't know, IBM Q network is just commercial partners, but just nonetheless, 14 whole machines that commercial partners who are paying IBM for a cut of the quantum pie can play around with. They can experiment. They can play with a 53-qubit machine, and it, that's pretty cool. It's cool that companies are getting going to get to do this. Um, I've seen some confusion around this. You aren't going to be able to hop on IBM Q Experience and play with a 53-qubit machine anytime soon, but it's still promising for the future of quantum computing, especially the economic ramifications. Think about these companies are the ones that are going to be driving forward the research because they've got the capital to invest in it. So that's pretty cool in my book. Um, final story I want to talk about. This one wasn't as big of news, but I still think it's interesting, especially because I'm a little foggy on it. Um, so hopefully someone can help clear this up for me. I've mentioned it before, mentioned it again. Correct me on everything I got wrong. Twitter at one Ethan Hansen. Here's the abstract. Maybe after I read this, you'll understand why I'm a bit confused. Magnetic flux quantization is one of the defining properties of a superconductor. We report the observation of half-integer magnetic flux quantization in mesoscopic rings of superconducting beta bismuth II palladium thin films. The half-quantum fluxoid manifests itself as a pi phase shift in the quantum oscillation of the superconducting critical temperature. This result verifies unconventional superconductivity of beta bismuth II palladium and it is consistent with a spin-triplet pairing symmetry. Our findings may have implications for flux quantum bits in the context of quantum computing. I'll let that sink in. Give you some time to digest all of that word salad. All right. So with terminology like magnetic flux quantization, half-quantum fluxoid, and spin-triplet pairing symmetry, pretty sure 90% of those words are made up. But other people say what they're talking about actually makes some sense. So I'll try to explain the results from the paper based on secondhand information I've gotten from sources other than just the paper and my own brain. Sources, uh, as always, are in the show notes. Seeing as this is an episode already going on too long. I have been recording just the main part for over 30 minutes now. I'm going to summarize the findings in a single sentence. A run-on sentence, mind you, but a single sentence. A certain superconducting material called beta bismuth II palladium exists naturally in a quantum state without needing a magnetic field that normally keeps a qubit in a quantum state, making it easier to maintain said quantum state for longer. Kind of a long sentence, but it gets the point across. This is potentially useful for making more fault-tolerant, higher-fidelity qubits. However, I didn't see anything about how easy it was to make the material beta bismuth II palladium, so that could be another roadblock. Again, cautiously optimistic. 
I think the common thread running through all of this news is exciting things are happening in the field of quantum computing, but it should all be taken with a grain of salt. Alright, listen up, listeners. I don't have any previous episode corrections. I don't have any listener questions for you. I got nothing. No one's responding to me. I get a couple likes on Twitter when I put out a new episode, but I need some feedback here. I don't know. Should I? Did you like this episode? I feel like it was a little more flippant at times. Did you like that more, that joviality, that repertoire with the audience? What did you think? I would appreciate any sort of feedback. I say yell at me on Twitter if I get something wrong. I don't actually want you to yell at me. It'd be cool every once in a while to hear, hey, Ethan, I really love what you're doing. Whatever. You can yell at me. That's awesome, too. But I can't improve without feedback. So let me know if I missed something. Let me know if you have any questions. What is quantum computing? What are p-bits? Can you dive deeper into this? Any sort of question would be much appreciated. So I said it before. I'll say it again. Twitter at one Ethan Hansen, best way to contact me. If you're interested in having your voice on the podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash quantum computing now and send a voice message. That would be really cool too. Thank you for watching. Give me some feedback. As always, the sources for this episode are in the show notes. I especially recommend reading the entire Google Quantum Supremacy paper, because maybe I missed something. Maybe you understand something I didn't. Whatever the case is, check it out, read it over, see what you understand, and let me know. You can stay up to date with what I'm doing and have a say in future episode topics if you are sure to follow me on Twitter at one Ethan Hansen. Quantum Computing Now is produced in partnership with thequantumdaily.com. The Quantum Daily aims to cut through the technical jargon and overhyped fluff pieces to deliver quality, comprehensible content about quantum computing. If you enjoy this podcast and would like text resources, be sure to check out thequantumdaily.com, which I've linked to in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I'll have another episode out when I get to it. <laughs>